Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And we're back again, continuing where we left off yesterday, continuing what turned out to be a two-parter, in fact, which I titled A Warning to Lovers of Money. In this episode, we continue on our journey through the whole second half of Luke chapter 16, and we're going to cover those verses 19 to 31. Yesterday, we saw Jesus issue a solemn warning, a warning against the dangers of loving money, making it the priority over the spiritual aspects of life, or particularly making the pursuit of money and wealth the priority, and also assuming that it signifies something spiritual when you were seen to be financially successful in the world. So join us as we now continue as he uses a story, a parable, to not only illustrate but to embed this teaching in the mind of anyone listening. So thanks for being with me. If you're here for the first time, why not consider subscribing and that way you'll not miss another episode and that way you'll get a notification and you can join us on this journey through the whole Bible. With that said, I'll leave it for now and I'll see you at the end just to tell you how it all works and update you about a few things. Bye-bye for now. Okay, now we saw yesterday how Jesus, when he taught on the principles of money and the accumulation of wealth, how it was met with ridicule by the Pharisees, who of course we know harbour a deep affection, not only for money, but for the procuring of it. The Pharisees' love of money led them to sneer, literally sneer at Jesus' teaching. However, we then saw how Jesus responded and challenged, confronted head-on their misguided values. Jesus did that by highlighting the transition from the era of the law, the Old Testament law and the prophets, to the proclamation of the kingdom of God that was fulfilled in his arrival. He underscored the validity of the law, but showed that its fulfillment was now completely with him. And he then went on to challenge the Pharisees, not only on, on their understanding of this aspect about money and wealth, he challenges them completely to their core on their superficial understanding of scriptures. He addresses the Pharisees' lax attitude, loose interpretation of scriptures, self-interested interpretation of scriptures in fact, to show how it leads to wrongful application of scripture towards everyday things in society. Things that he chose then were to discuss marriage and divorce, exposing the wider principle here by showing the potential repercussions on society, on community, on literally village life of the misinterpretation of scripture. Very simply summing it up by stating the principle that wrong theology will always lead to wrong conduct, sinful conduct. He uses the position on divorce that was all around him to underscore the potential impact of incorrect scriptural interpretation and the negative effect it has on societal norms. His stance on divorce reflected the prevailing attitudes and practices at that time where divorce had become simple to the point where women were no longer wanting to get married because they didn't feel that the system worked for them, that that there was a safe place for them and for any potential children they might have. 
and his teaching has got to be held within the context of restoring the sanctity of married life and family life at that time on the attack it was coming by this type of teaching. So that was used to show that the principle comes from the core thing of not interpreting scripture correctly. Remember, he's dealing and addressing with the, the incorrect attitude towards the accumulation of wealth and what it means if one's wealthy in life, but he's saying that it just has this wider implication. He's now going to choose to embed this truth by doing what he often does, teaching by using a story, and in this case the story is a famous one of the rich man and Lazarus. So what I'd like to do first is just read it for you, and then we'll try and unpack it together. It first of all tells us this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came to lick his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, whilst Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you and I is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to you. He answered then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone is raised from the dead. Why does this narrative enter the discussion? Why this strange left turn, so to speak, friends? Well, it centers around this wealthy man. So again, he's using this parabolic style of teaching, although many Bible experts would say it was actually a real story, highlighting the theme of money. Some do label this a parable. In fact, it may be called that in your Bible. It is in mine. But many Bible experts now believe it was an actual story that was being circulated at that time. How do we know that? Well, simply parables. There's no parable in the New Testament that names the characters. It's a, an illustrative story to paint a picture. But Jesus here identifies both individuals in the tale. Now, the story serves a crux, a conclusion, a high point of interpretation to this whole passage we've been looking at for two days. It's meant to be a powerful illustration of the consequences of prioritizing wealth over pursuing spiritual truths. Otherwise, why even mention the fact that the man is rich in the story? It would make no sense otherwise. 
and the rich man's fate, as seen here, is meant to serve as a stark reminder against the, well, the dangers of what we would today describe as materialism, above and beyond neglecting the needs of people in need, the needs of others. It's a sobering reminder that our choices in life have not only repercussions, as he's just illustrated, in the everyday societal impact it has, but also, Jesus is saying, there's internal, eternal repercussions to living and thinking this way. So amid the apparent tangents in the discourse that have occurred so far, my contention is that each element, as we've worked through these couple of days, Although different, and although sometimes a bit of a segue and a left turn, they all serve to underscore the central message, which is the detrimental effect of prioritizing wealth over spiritual well-being and the damage that it does in the today, every day, and the eternal significance of making that choice. In the opening verses, we're introduced to this wealthy man. We're told he's adorned in purple and fine linen, and he's living extravagantly every single day of his life. Each detail in the opening of the passage is given to emphasize the idea of the opulent lifestyle he's living. He's what we would today, some might say, filthy rich. He's clothed in purple, the most expensive type of cloth of that day. So that's told to to give us, to signify the fact that he has even expensive clothes. Fine linen is added to the description to give us the image of luxury. And he is indulging in a sumptuous living, a lifestyle akin to, I suppose, what would today, some might say, a sort of a playboy. This extravagant existence, Jesus says, well, it violates not just the Sabbath principles, but even potentially the commandment to labor six days a week and only rest for one day. So this guy is so rich, he's blind to all of these spiritual truths and even that of living a meaningful life during the every day of the week. This is then contrasted when we encounter Lazarus, this guy's a beggar. He's described as being plagued with sores, living at the rich man's gates, it's said, and yet literally yearning for the hope of some scraps from his table. The imagery is vivid, isn't it, friends? Lazarus is seen to be sick, hungry, a beggar, and he's reduced to hoping for discarded scraps from the table. Even this mention of dogs licking his wounds is meant to highlight the dire circumstances in which he lives. He's not even got clothing to cover the wounds and he doesn't even have the strength to shoo the animals away that are pestering him. He's a pitiful figure and he's meant to stand in stark contrast to the wealthy opulence of the rich man. It's all a picture that resonates with our mind, underscoring the depth in this case of Lazarus's poverty and the pain it's bringing to him in this life. His situation and the description it is meant to evoke a visceral reaction in our spirit. It's meant to illustrate the stark divide between the opulent and the impoverished. In essence, this passage presents us with a juxtaposition. The self-indulgent, callous, uncaring, wealthy man versus the wretched, suffering beggar. Through these characters, Jesus is painting a poignant picture of societal disparity and the moral implications of neglecting the needs of the marginalized. Notice actually where 
Lazarus is said to to live. He lives at the gate of the rich man. So the key point is making here is that the wealthy man will undoubtedly know of this beggar's presence, yet he's not choosing to offer even a modicum of assistance. It's a stark illustration of the rich man's callousness and his indifference to anything else other than the pursuit of money, wealth, and the selfish hedonistic enjoyment of it. Then in verse 22, we see a shift to the respective fates of these skies following death. Lazarus, we are told, is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, as it's described in the King James, that lovely picture. And the rich man, well, he doesn't receive any sort of honour. He, uh, well, how can I say it? Where he ends up is certainly in stark contrast to the fate of Lazarus. So the scene then transitions to this rich man living in torments, in Hades, the use of the plural torments is meant to, I believe, suggest there's a multifaceted aspect to his anguishes. They are both physical, emotional, and psychological. So he's in torments on all three levels of the human experience. His obsession with wealth while he lived, not wealth itself necessarily, it's his obsession, his priority of wealth that is the thing that condemns him. We see Abraham, who by the way, remember this guy's poor guy, man's carried to Abraham's side in heaven. Abraham of course was also so considered wealthy and he is seen to reside in heaven. It is the fact that the rich man neglected the spiritual matters and the balanced application of living a life that acknowledges God's blessing is the thing that seals his fate, not the money and the wealth in itself. Lazarus, we see, however, finds himself in this place, heaven, this place of fellowship with Abraham himself. And I think verse 29 hints for us that though poor, even throughout his poverty, this guy was, is described as listening to Moses and the prophets, thereby gaining spiritual insights. In other words, he understood the message of faith that he exemplified in the life story and journey of Abraham. Now, when the rich man, on the other hand, he appeals to Father Abraham for mercy, you need to note that he's referring to his Jewish lineage in order to gain access to heaven and God. However, the true lineage revealed here, and according to a great extent of the writing of Paul in the New Testament, says that that true inheritance lies in faith, not our literal ancestry. The rich man's plea for relief from torment is there to highlight the agony of the situation he's found himself in. So in desperation, he requests Lazarus, Lazarus of all people to come and soothe his suffering with a mere drop of water. That's the scene, the poignant scene. It's meant to now encapsulate again the stark contrast between these two people, both between their earthly lives and now their eternal destinies. The rich man's plea serves as a sobering reminder of the consequences of neglecting spiritual matters in our life in exchange for the pursuit of worldly things. Now notice how the rich man's plea is for relief from the torment. It isn't actually a request for freedom. He's just asking for relief, relief with the drop of water. 
I think this is meant to contrast for us the fact that Jesus' offer of salvation in heaven for us is often framed within the idea of living water. We think of the woman by the well, don't we? Symbolizing satisfaction, eternal satisfaction. Again, the stark contrast between never thirsting again and the eternal thirst that will be experienced in hell is profound. When Abraham addresses him as son, it's a likely recognition of the physical lineage of Abraham. And this reminder of his heritage is there and in a sense will add to his torment, suggesting the fact that yes, that's true, he was part of the family of the nation of Israel, but that can do nothing other than say, look at the opportunities you've missed and the reality of the separation that now he lives in. Perhaps it is that knowledge of that separation and that missed opportunity, which is the greatest source of anguish of all here. One might say the rich man's anguish is compounded by the realization that his selfishness and his neglect of Lazarus, the very fact that he lived a life in that way where he was able not to look at people with the compassion of God is the very thing that has led him to his current state. Jesus' preceding teaching on money and the love of money and the pursuit of wealth underscores the fact that the rich man missed his opportunity for spiritual investment by focusing on these worldly things. Instead of using his wealth to offer help to others and to follow the scriptures, he's simply chosen to indulge in self-centered pursuits. The failure here is the failure to prioritize spiritual matters over physical things. It is that that has condemned him to separation, to separation from the comfort and the fellowship and the love of God. And the mention of this great gulf fixed between the rich man and Abraham emphasizes the fact that this situation is permanent. There's no second chances it's telling us. One's earthly life will eventually, at the point of death, the decisions we've made, the way we lived, the ultimate decision we've made will determine our eternal destiny. The rich man's acknowledgement of his predicament signifies, I think, a sobering acceptance of this fate. So in essence, this story is meant to serve as a powerful warning against selfishness to the point that we neglect spiritual truth. It underscores the importance of prioritizing investing in the spiritual things like compassion towards another, like care and love, that those sort of choices are the things that ultimately will determine one's eternal destiny. It took the reality of this place called Hades, the permanent separation from God, in any way to weaken any sense of compassion within him for other people, which is ironic, isn't it? And I think you could say, well, perhaps only a true understanding of hell represented as a place of separation and eternal conscious torment is the only thing that perhaps can have the truly transformative effect on the life and the earthly experiences of people living today. That's a profound truth, isn't it? It underscores the depth of the eternal truths that people need to be brought in front of and to confront in order to fully grasp the extent of the gospel. The rich man's plea is to send Lazarus, warn his brothers, and Abraham's response is really interesting. 
He, pr he basically says, we've already had everything he needed to be saved. He's had Moses. He's had the prophets. He's had the scriptures. He's had all those things to guide and instruct them. He's even had Jesus standing before him and the miracles. Money and scripture are intricately woven throughout this entire narrative, emphasizing their intertwined significance in understanding spiritual truth and the choice we have to make. Do we love the things of this world or do we love the things of of the Lord. The rich man's failure here was to not see and not follow the truth. And even in his life, he was confronted with the miraculous signs. The people who are listening to this have been confronted with the, the, the Messiah himself, the miraculous signs that follow on. It's all meant to serve as a reminder of the primacy of Scripture in guiding our faith to preparing the heart to live in the right way to receive God. And it actually concludes by him saying, well, even, even if someone was to be raised for the dead, it wouldn't make any difference to these guys because without a willingness to follow the Scriptures, to believe what they said and live that life, then any form of other type of persuasion would be futile. This underscores the foundational importance of believing and adhering to the teachings of the Bible above all else. And it is only by doing that and living that way that you're fully able to recognize God's coming kingdom in the world around you in your life. So when we consider all the elements of the passage today and yesterday and put it all together, it suggests that the love of money is the main thing that blinds people to spiritual truth, or certainly one of the main things. And ultimately, this is serious because look what it can do to society. Look what it can do because it ultimately can lead you. Well, you're going to live your life in this world separate from God and that one day that position may be made permanent. That's why I emphasized at the beginning yesterday when we opened up this section that money, in a sense, needs to have a warning label attached to it. It's spiritually toxic. It can be anyway. It's capable of damaging one's spiritual life and even ultimately leading to your eternal separation from God if you don't have the right attitude towards it. Now, remember, this passage was primarily addressed. Jesus is speaking here to unbelievers, but I believe the principle applies to all of us because we all have the potential to become so engrossed in the pursuit of wealth and material possessions that we neglect our loved ones and we ignore the word of God and we neglect the very people in need who are standing in front of us. How many people do you know who have been consumed by the pursuit of wealth to the extent that they have no time for God or even just simply no time for their family? C.S. once wrote that he said the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope under the foot without sudden turnings, without milestones and without signposts, he said, is the most dangerous path of all. So the point is, the big point Jesus is making here is the love of money can blind you. Not money in itself, the love of money. It can blind you to spiritual truths and ultimately can cause spiritual death. Blind you to spiritual truths, choosing you to live a life where you choose to separate yourself from the will and the plan of God in that life. And one day that decision may very well be made permanent. So the message is, friends, today, 
enjoy the blessings of God, enjoy the blessings and any resources that God has brought into your life and put them to good use. But still remember, always remember, such provision comes with a warning label and that label is to beware. Hey friends, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. I do hope you find that uh, challenging and helpful interpretation of this passage. Can I remind you that new episodes are posted pretty much every Monday to Friday with occasional bonus episodes here and there. And you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It's on all the major podcast platforms. By subscribing, it doesn't cost anything. It just means that you don't miss another single episode. I can also remind you that you can connect to us, the podcast that hosted on the Bible Project at buzzbout.com. There you'll find links to social media and other places. And you'll also find a link where you can partner and support this ministry at my Patreon account. This is my main and only source of income nowadays until I receive the old age pension. So uh, I'm very grateful for those of you who have supported this ministry, enabled me to cover the costs of making it freely available and copyright free all over the world. Thank you for them and thank you for anyone who's joined with me. Can I just mention I have a new weekly podcast started. It's a history of the Christian church. It's my take on the story of the Christian church reflected through the life, the teaching, the spiritual wisdom of the greatest people with over 2,000 years of church history. It is being positioned and placed within the secular section of the history podcast, of the history genre, which is a really substantial area of podcasting, much bigger than Christian spirituality. And my thinking is by there, it has the potential to reach people who've never really approached the Bible or the story of people who believe in the Bible, had it presented from what I would consider an authentic Christian perspective. So if you're interested in that or friends in that, follow the link that appears in the episode notes and you can subscribe to that one too if you want. But with that all said, we'll leave it there today. Thank you for joining me and I'll see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.